You'll find the insert in the bulletin. Luke chapter 9, as we spend our second week looking at the passage that we began last week. And as we study Luke chapter 9, I want to address just by asking a question. What, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean, in fact, to be a Christian? What does that look like? What are the marks of a follower of Jesus? What is the mindset of one who has come to Christ? This morning's text, the second half of Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27, Jesus, in emphatic, clear, and simple terms, will give us an answer. It may not be the answer that we're used to hearing. It may not be the answer we expect to hear. As is frequently the case in the Bible, some of the hardest truths are the most plain and simple truths. This is not a complicated passage. And yet I think there's much here for our souls, much here for our understanding. As we ask ourselves, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean that I'm a follower of Jesus? What does he require of us? What does that look like? And as you join with me in reading, as I read along, Luke 9, 18 to 27, we'll begin by reading our text. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now last week, we focused on the issue of the true identity of the Messiah, and we noted that as Jesus prayed, Luke has connected and emphasized Jesus' prayer life. And the last time we saw Jesus at prayer through an entire night in chapter 6, the result was divine knowledge and understanding. Jesus comes out of his all-night prayer visual, and he picks, chooses his 12 apostles And the conclusion we're to understand is that because of Jesus' prayer life, he was so effective in ministry. Because of Jesus' commitment to prayer, he understood the Father's will. Well, here again, we see Jesus in prayer, and the result is more understanding, more new information. We saw three new pieces of information added to Luke's narrative. First, for the first time in the narrative, a person not possessed of a demon confesses Jesus as the Christ of God. Up until this point, angels have confessed it. The narrator has confessed it. Demon-possessed individuals have confessed it. 
But as we've been trying to answer this question, first asked by the disciples in the boat, echoed by Herod, who is this? The very first human being to confess Jesus as the Christ for the entire apostles is Peter. That understanding, that insight is so tightly connected to Jesus' prayer. One has to wonder if in part Jesus was praying for his disciples. And a second new theme in Luke is introduced, and that is of the Messiah's mission. And we understand and we know from reading the Gospels that the disciples and the people of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah who would come in power, who would come in authority, who would come in pomp, who would come and most importantly, vindicate them, raise them up, deliver them from their enemies, crush down the Roman rule, establish a kingdom, and rule from sea to sea. They were looking for the Messiah of Psalm 2. In fact, in John chapter 6, they came and tried by force to take Jesus and make him king. And now for the first time, clearly in Luke's narrative, the the notion, the, the truth that the Messiah would come not initially to rule and reign, but to suffer and die. This is a truth that had been hinted at previously in Luke's Gospel, only hinted at, now blatantly said, Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, raised. Jesus spends the night in prayer and he comes out with this clear understanding and he reveals this to his disciples. This is a notion he will tell them repeatedly and it will not stick. It is, it is so wrong when compared to their expectations. In fact, even after the resurrection, the angel reminds them of what Jesus had told them, and they still, it didn't click. They were so focused on what we would understand as Jesus' second coming, when he does come in power, when he does come in authority and rule, that they they had no category for a suffering Messiah. But here he tells them that plainly. We looked at that all last week. But then, following on this deeper understanding of who Jesus is, As Peter first says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah of God. Jesus then says, okay, Peter, let me tell you what that means. My mission is not one of exaltation, but humiliation, one of suffering, death, and then comes vindication. Jesus descends and he humbles himself. And according to Philippians chapter 2, because of this, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. First comes ignominy, shame suffering, and death. What we're look at this morning is not the identity of the Messiah. Who is this Jesus? He's the Christ of God, but he is a Christ who comes to suffer and die. But now the true identity of a disciple. The logic is this. As Peter, the apostles, as we understand who Jesus is, as we share in that confession, he is the Christ, and we understand that he is a Messiah who is a servant, who is lowly, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. As we understand, his mission was to come and serve, not be served. Give himself as a ransom and a sacrifice for many. Jesus then, based on that information of his life and his pattern, calls, demands, in fact, his disciples follow that pattern. He invites them to follow his walk. This is the hard part for us. The true identity of a disciple. Specifically, we're looking at verses 23 through 27. 
The text breaks down nicely with three absolute demands of discipleship in verse 23, followed by three compelling reasons for discipleship in 24 to 27. So three absolute demands of discipleship in verse 23, followed by three compelling reasons. You see verse 24 begins with four. Verse 25, four. Verse 26, four. He's giving three reasons, three arguments, three explanations the three imperative commands found in verse 23. So let's begin then with three absolute demands of discipleship. First, I just want to draw us back to the context that we've been reviewing, and that is this. Jesus has just revealed his mission of suffering, death, and vindication. Suffering, death, and vindication. You can think of it like a V. He will. He has already descended from heaven. He's taken on humanity. He's taken on our weaknesses and infirmities, but he will descend even further as men reproach him, as men flog and whip him, as he puts on a, thorn, a crown of thorns. Ultimately, the lowest point on the cross, the shame of the cross, bearing our sin on our behalf. Jesus has descended and he will descend even further. He will go lower yet still. And then, and only then, on the other side of that suffering and sorrow and humility, comes the vindication, comes the exaltation, comes the glory, comes resurrection. Jesus has revealed that is his, his, his mission plan, down and up. And it's crucial to understand that because that is exactly what he is calling us to follow in his footsteps, that we would humble ourselves, that we would enter into suffering, that we would experience that same down and up. Jesus now reveals what it means for his disciples to follow him. This is the context. And the thought is you can only really understand and even embrace what Jesus is calling and demanding upon us as we first understand who he is and understand that he is calling us to nothing that he himself is not leading and doing. I want you to notice something else. These are the blanks. He said to all, if anyone would come after me. I just need to pause here because it's, it's critical for us to understand this, this is an absolute demand, and it's for everyone who would be a follower of Jesus. I've, I've heard people attempt to argue that this is some sort of post-salvation call to discipleship. I went to a school in upstate New York where the, the method was you would ask Jesus into your heart, you'd be saved, and then on Saturday night of the camp, they'd encourage you to come and become a disciple and, and, and let Jesus um, lead you and follow after him as if one could be a Christian but not a disciple. That won't fly here. It won't fly here at all. Look at the stakes that Jesus puts on the line of this. So he gives the commands, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, verse 24, four which means here's a buttressing argument. Here's an explanation for why verse 23. Verse 23 is true or necessary because whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're talking about salvation here. We're not talking about levels of reward or crowns or glory. We're talking about life and death. It's plain. It's inescapable. It's right there in black and white. Again, if that's not persuasive, verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses himself? This is about saving yourself or forfeiting and losing yourself. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed 
but he comes in his glory of his Father and the holy angels. So it's crucial for us to understand this is not something Jesus is just saying to the apostles. He said to all, that's universal inclusive, right? Everyone there, everyone, this includes the women from chapter 8. So all of his would-be disciples. And then if anyone, again, in an all-encompassing condition, he said to all, if anyone would come after me. These are the conditions. So you want to follow Jesus. So you want to be a Christian. So you want to come after him. Good. Jesus then gives three absolute demands. Now the ESV doesn't make it as clear, but these are all imperatives. These are commands. These are not suggestions. These are not good ideas. They're not guidelines. These are demands of the living Christ. For those who've come to the conviction, you are the Christ of God. You first must know He is a suffering Christ. He is a dying Messiah. And then, for those who understand that would come after Him, He calls them to follow His pattern. There is no salvation apart from discipleship. It's the same thing. The call to salvation is the call to discipleship. Is the call to faith. Another way of looking at this, these demands unpack the nuances and the characteristics of what is saving faith. What does it mean to believe savingly? This, this is important to stress because we, we live in a day and an age and in a culture that has so minimized what saving faith can be. Just asking Jesus into your heart, which if what you mean by that phrase is this, then hallelujah and amen. That, that's not a phrase you'll find in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to ask Jesus into our heart. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to accept Jesus. And again, if what you mean by those things is what Jesus means here, then hallelujah. But we, we live in a world that denies these realities. We need to look at them in the face and, and understand if what we understand is our Christianity, what we understand is our discipleship, is what Jesus demands. And if we understand the stakes are as high when it comes to these commands as our Lord insists they are. So let's begin with the commands now. We've got the context. He said to all, if anyone would come after me now, the commands, three, three imperatives. One, you must renounce yourself. You must renounce yourself. The ESV has deny yourself, but it's really the notion of disowning, refusing to associate with, to renounce. It's the same word used a little later in Luke 14.33. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Or probably most vividly, you want to know what it means to renounce. We see the same word in, in Luke chapter 22. Peter, following along the trial and arrest, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him. This man was also with him, she said. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. What did, Jesus, what did Peter do? He renounced any association with Jesus. I'm not his disciple. I'm not his follower. I have nothing to do with him. Except here, Jesus is demanding we do that of ourselves. This, this is counterintuitive. This is hard. You know, there's all these things that I want. There's all these things that I aspire to. There's all these things that I would have. And if I'm to be a disciple of Christ, I have to set aside any allegiance to those things. Now perhaps in God's plan and God's will, I will achieve and do some of those things. But when I come to Christ, I don't come with a conditions list. I come empty-handed. I come 
as his servant. I deny myself. My, my primary allegiance is no longer with myself, but him. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 14 says that he's concluded that one died for all, therefore all have died, and they live not for themselves, but for him who died. If you come to Christ, your, your orientation, the pole of your life, the, the principle of organization which you build your life around is not what you want, but Christ and what he would have. Self-denial. We live in a, we live in an age that wants to celebrate self-esteem. We think it's crucial that people feel good about themselves. Jesus here says, no, renounce yourself. Disown yourself. This is the picture of, I, I, I don't want to be who I was. I'm ashamed of the desires that well up within me. I'm ashamed of the, the hungers and the thirsts that I have. Lord, Lord, would you slay me? Would you kill me? I, I don't want to be that person anymore. Would you remake me? It's, it's the difference between renovation and recreation, right? You've seen those shows where they renovate a kitchen and they put a new countertop in, they put a new fridge in. It's still basically the same kitchen. And it's shined up and it looks pretty. That is not what the gospel offers. Gospel is not self-improvement. The gospel is not renovation. The gospel is God will kill you, resurrect you, and recreate you. So he put to death the flesh. And Paul can say, I no longer live. I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I that live, but Christ in me. So coming to Christ in faith is to disown yourself. You, you can kill me. You can slay me. You can recreate me. It's difficult. It's hard. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, an example of this. Do you ever think when you were a child that it would be fun if your toys could come to life? Am I not the only one who play with your toys? And <laughs> well, suppose you really could have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier. Those of you who don't know what tin soldiers are, think like G.I. Joe or something. Um, taking a tin soldier and turning it into a real little man. What would that involve? It would involve turning the tin into flesh. Suppose the tin soldier did not like that. He's not very interested in flesh. All he sees is that his shiny tin is being ruined and spoiled. He thinks you are killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent it. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. And that's, that's the challenge for us. Understand, Jesus wants to kill and resurrect you. I'll talk to people sometimes, and they'll say, well, something hard. That's just not who I am. I'm not, whatever, I'm not very open. I'm not very... I understand that. You understand God wants to kill you, right? To kill that and to recreate you in the image of his son, right? I'm not suggesting that's easy, but we, we do get that, right? Let's renounce yourself. Second, absolute demand. You must pick up your cross daily. You must daily pick up your cross. Now, the inclusion of daily here makes it clear he's not just talking about martyrdom. If he didn't say daily, there's only one thing you pick up your cross to do, the, the condemned to crucifixion. And that's all this would mean. Christianity has no association with the cross yet, except for those individuals who'd made the connection with Psalm 22. All crucifixion has an association with is the way the worst offenders were torturously killed. It's not jewelry. 
It's not some little irritation in your life. It is torturous death. And part of the shame and ignominy of crucifixion is those condemned to it had to carry their own crosses to the hill or the place where they would be crucified. And so what Jesus is saying is not only must you be willing to die, but you need to be willing to actually lean into that, to carry your cross. You might think, well, if you're going to crucify me, I'm certainly not going to help out. If you're going to crucify me, you could just have to carry that thing yourself. But no, the picture of picking up your cross is, is not to resist that, to embrace it just as Jesus did. And this is to be done daily. This, this attitude first of self-denial. What I want doesn't really matter. What I crave, what I must have, that's really none of my concern. I've renounced that. Second, our natural inclination to, to, to remove ourselves from suffering, to distance ourselves from pain, you must daily pick up your cross. It's clear. It's really hard. Really hard. And again, this can only be done with the example of Jesus in front of us. Jesus doesn't tell this to his disciples until after He's explained that he himself will lead this charge. He will set this pattern. And it's only by fixing our eyes on Christ do we have any hope of doing this. But in, in a country that's told us that we can be wealthy and prosperous and middle class and comfortable and be Christians, this is earth-shaking. And we need to look it in the face and not look away and not blink. He may not call all of us to die, but he is plainly demanded the right to do so. Plainly demanded the right to do so. I was talking to a friend of mine about an analogy of this. It's kind of like soldiers on leave. And they're allowed to go on leave, but they know that at any moment they can be called into duty. They can be called to go put themselves on the front line of a battle. And you're one of these soldiers, and you're on leave, and you're in town, and you're, you're visiting the area, and you're, you're eating at dinner, and you're seeing all of your friends doing that. And then you get called upon you get dispatched, you're called to the front lines. And if you forgot that, you can say, but look at all these other soldiers. They're not being called to the front lines. Why am I being called to the front lines? Well, you shouldn't have forgot that, should you? Just because it's not obvious to us that Jesus has called and is calling all Christians in the West to suffer and die this way, in no way mitigates the fact that he has clearly demanded he has the right to do so. And we have to look that square in the face. Let's pick up our cross. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. The early church knew a lot about suffering, and this type of stuff makes sense. It isn't as confusing in parts of the world where persecution is rife. I was talking to a brother who's a missionary in a Muslim country, and you can just imagine the cost of a Muslim telling his family he's no longer a Muslim, but he's a follower of Jesus Christ. They would get this type of stuff. That would click. Of course. Of course there'll be persecution. Of course I have to pick up my cross. It's only in a wealthy, comfortable climate like ours that these things make us go, what? Listen to Peter's instruction to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. But to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 
you and I have been called to follow Christ's example of suffering. To this you've been called. What? The example that Christ left. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. You read through the New Testament, this, this logic, this understanding is clear. We just get confused because we've been on shore leave for so long and we haven't seen any soldiers get called in for active duty that we've deluded ourselves into thinking that can and will never happen. You need to look at passages like this square in the face and not blink. Renounce yourself. You must daily pick up your cross. Every day. Which means every day there's a chance to refuse to pick it up. Every day there's a chance to wake up and say, nope, I'm going to do what I want today. And I don't feel like dying. Right? If you're like me, you have days like that. And that's the challenge. It'd be, in some senses, easier if we could just get it over and done with. But Jesus is calling for this as a pattern of life every day, day after day, day after day, denying myself, day after day, doing hard, painful things that, make no mistake, may very well feel like you are dying. But let us not be shocked. Let us not be amazed when the Lord calls us into these types of things. I mean, let us be thankful for the seasons of life that don't feel like death. Amen. Hallelujah. But let there be no surprise or shock when the Lord calls us into hard places in following him. Point three, you must in this way follow after Jesus. The verbs make it clear in the Greek that the first two, the denial of self and the picking up daily of a cross, is how one follows after him. You are following him this way. And so what he's saying is, so you want to follow me, eh? Great. Here's how you do it. Here's what that looks like. Here is how you must follow. You must follow by denying yourself. You can only follow by picking up your cross. There is no other way. And if we try to convince ourselves that there's some other way to follow Jesus, maybe a little bit further behind, you know, maybe, maybe instead of walk on foot in a golf cart, you know, we found some other way to follow Jesus than what he demands. We, we fool ourselves. These are imperatives. These are demands. You must, if you want to follow him, to anyone and everyone who wants to follow Jesus, you must renounce yourself. You must daily pick up your cross. You must, in this way, follow him. In order to wear the crown of glory, you must bear the cross. It's that same pattern. You see, we're tempted just like the disciples. We just want the glory. We just want the exaltation. We just want the blessing. Now it's coming. Jesus will make reference of it in the coming verses. It's coming, but just like our Lord first descended and then ascended, it's the same pattern he lays out for us. Let's move along to three compelling reasons for discipleship. Three compelling reasons for discipleship. Now Jesus knows that what he has just said is hard. It's counter-human, it's counter-intuitive, it's kind of counter-survival nature. Everything in us at times will say, no, we don't move towards danger and suffering, we move away. We, we try to line things up so we can accomplish what we want, we don't deny ourselves. Jesus knows this is hard. And I don't want you to take from what I'm saying that I think this is easy. I, I, these are, I've seen people, it's been my privilege to walk with people through some very, very hard things. So I'm not pretending this is easy. 
Let us not pretend it's optional. Some Christians do this. Now, as we'll see now, as we look at three compelling reasons, there are Christians who do this, and there are would-be followers who refuse. Three compelling reasons. All of them, by the way, assume an either-or dichotomy. All of them assume an either-or dichotomy. I want to say that up front because I think the reason that we don't believe this and therefore the reason why we don't do this is because we've deluded ourselves into thinking we can have it both. We can have our cake and eat it too. So I want you to notice in all three of these reasons, and all of them are ironic. You know, you know what irony is, right? It's the opposite of wrinkly. Um, okay, just making sure people are awake. Um, all of them are ironic. All of them are equally counterintuitive. But they all assume an either this or that, not a both and. And I think, I suspect that we here in the West have told ourselves, no, I can have it both. So let's look at these three ironies. Three ironies. First, the irony of salvation. The irony of salvation. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And I want you to notice something. Jesus is assuming that everybody wants to save their life. He's not viewing it, well, there are some people who want to save their lives and there are some people who don't care. The assumption here is everyone wants to save their life. The question is how? How? How, how do you save your life? Well, some people save their life by protecting it from suffering. That's how you save your life. You want to live to a ripe old age, don't put yourself on the front line of military conflicts. Fair enough. You want to live to a ripe old age, you want to save your life, you don't put yourself in harm's way. And so in seeking to save their life, though, the irony here is the very act of trying to save their life loses it. I was a lifeguard for a summer, and I know that some here have been lifeguards, and, and once, a life, once someone is trying to rescue a drowning swimmer, what they need to do is stop fighting. If someone who's being rescued or being attempted to be rescued while they're drowning continues to thrash and flail, what will most likely happen is not only they will drown, but the person rescuing them will drown. They need to fight every instinct of self-preservation, right? The very act, the irony of trying to save themselves will drown them. Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying all of those instincts that we have to move away from suffering, to move away from hardship, to move away from danger, those acts, and this is the irony, will be the very thing that causes us to lose our life. Again, it's clear, whoever loses his life, whoever would save his life, will lose it. The very attempt to cling to, to hold on to, no, that's my life, and I'm going to do with it what I want. I don't want that. That very act will ensure its loss. Ironically, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's what we got to have in view here. This is counterintuitive. This is hard. We are hardwired to resist, to avoid suffering. Hardwired to do what we want. Pursue our pleasure. And this is why it comes down to faith. We have to believe the Lord that He knows what He's talking about. We have to believe the Lord that our very actions of self-preservation in this life will forfeit our life. By contrast, 
Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You've got to believe that. You've got to be aware of that. You know, my, my swimming analogy is a weak one because all the swimmer has to do is sort of let go and relax. It's entirely passive. If you can just relax and stop thrashing, you'll live. But Jesus is calling not for something passive, but an active cross-bearing, right? Let me use a slightly stronger illustration. It doesn't work on all points, but I think it, it illustrates the mindset we got to have. Because it's so counterintuitive, because it's so counter our desires to embrace suffering, self-denial, and death, the only real way we're going to be able to do that is if we understand what's at stake, if we understand with eyes of faith how critical things are. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking alone through Blue John Canyon in eastern Wayne County, Utah. While he was descending a slot canyon, suspended boulder which became dislodged while he was climbing down from it crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. Ralston had not informed anyone of his hiking plans so no one would have been searching for him. Assuming that he would die without intervention he spent five days slowly sipping his small amount of water approximately 350 milliliters and slowly eating his small amount of food and trying to free his arm. His efforts were futile as he could not free his arm from the 800-pound chokestone. After three days of trying to lift and break the boulder, the dehydrated and delirious Ralston prepared to amputate his trapped right arm at a point on his mid-forearm in order to escape. He experimented with tourniquets and made some exploratory superficial cuts. But he realized he'd have to cut through his bone and wouldn't be able to do that with his dull pocket knife. When he ran out of food and water on the fifth day, he carved his name date of birth and presumable date of death in the wall of the canyon. Videotaped his last goodbye to his family, he did not expect to survive the night. After waking at dawn the following day, Tuesday, May 1st, he had an epiphany that he could break his arm using torque against it. He did so and then performed the amputation, which took about an hour, with his multi-tool. After freeing himself, he still had to get back to his truck. He climbed out of the slot canyon in which he'd been trapped, rappelled down a 65-foot sheer wall, one-handed, then hiked out of the canyon eight miles to his vehicle. Now, that's a graphic illustration, right? It's a graphic story, but what's the point? No one is naturally going to do that. No one is going to naturally have any reason to, to amputate their arm unless... They understand the stakes are life and death. But when someone sees the stakes are truly life and death, then such actions become rational. That's what Jesus is saying. Understand, if, if you're going to protect your life, preserve your life at all costs, you will lose it. But if you lay your life down for Jesus, however he calls you to lay it down, you will save it. I know that story can be graphic, but Jesus used an equally graphic illustration in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body should go into hell. Notice again the life and death stakes. I belabor the point because when you're faced with those choices where following Christ feels like death, and everything in you cries out, No! Avoid this. I want you to remember the stakes. I want to pop the bubble of the lie that says you can have Christ and you can have your own way. 
seek to save your life, you will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's the irony of salvation. It's ironic that the very act of trying to preserve, protect your life will be the thing that destroys it. Second, the irony of value. The irony of value. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And again, the assumption is everyone wants gain. Everyone wants value. The question is how and where do you find your gain and your value? And Jesus imagines somebody who is able to gain the entire whole world. This is the Faustian bargain. You become you know, the king of earth, but you forfeit your soul. Have you really gained anything? There's an irony here. The irony is the people who are pursuing this world's goods really don't have an understanding of what is valuable. Again, it's not as though the world seeks value, but Christians don't. The issue is, will you seek what is truly valuable? What cannot be taken from you? What cannot be destroyed? Or neither moth or rust devour? Or will you spend your time chasing about this mist of a life? I remember an illustration when I was in um, college economics class. Professor Mackey told us, that has stuck with me. You probably heard me tell this before in a couple sermons, but I'll say it again. And it's, it's the illustration is imagine that you're, you've just been the 10,000th customer to walk through the supermarket front door. And as you walk in, all the bells and whistles and sirens go off and the, you know, the confetti comes down and, and you get one whole minute in the money room. And you get to shop shopping bags and all your friends can come and watch. And in the money room, there are a number of tables. There's one table piled high with $1 bills. And there's another table piled high with fives and another table piled high with twenties and fifties. You're there, you're ready to go, you got your bags in your hand and all your friends are watching and the TV cameras are on and the gun goes off, bang! And you run, lickety-split, over to that one's table and you start cramming one dollar bills into your bag. And all your friends cry out, what are you doing? And you say, well, what's wrong with the ones? Well, the answer is nothing, stupid. <laughs> and yet we can be so tempted to spend all of our time at that one, I'd say it's the pennies table. It's the monopoly money table. Things that have no eternal value, no eternal consequence. We gather them up and we spend all of our time thinking and dreaming about them. And we ignore things of eternal value. You understand you can do things that will have eternal consequences. That, that your acts of faithfulness, your acts of obedience, your acts of, of following Jesus will ring in eternity. Will ring in eternity. Jesus described a man who had great wealth and he built great towers and he filled them up and he thought to himself, soul, you can take it easy, you're all set. The problem was, his life was required of him that night. There's an irony here. The irony is that those people who run around chasing after this world's belongings have too low an opinion of value, not too high. Again, another quote from C.S. Lewis is helpful, this from The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's not that we want good things too much. We don't want them enough. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child 
who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Blanks here, your soul is worth more than the whole world. Your soul is worth more than the whole world. If you cling to life, if you cling to life, you do not value it enough. That's the irony. Value your soul. Don't value this stuff. Love your soul. Value that. Fine, finally. There's the irony of shame. The irony of shame. Verse 26 and 27. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now first, observe, Jesus is not denying that he will come in power and glory. All that his apostles and his followers wanted to see that kingdom, that coming, it's coming, but first, the suffering and the death. The, what's ironic here is this. In the first illustration, the first ironic reason, Jesus anticipates that we aren't going to want to die and lose our lives. We aren't going to want to suffer. But that very act of, of clinging to, preserving your life, will be the very thing that causes you to lose it. The second is gain. He anticipates that following Christ might might cost me gain in this world. There are things I want in this life, things I want to do in this world, and if I follow Jesus the way he demands, I won't be able to achieve them. He says, you don't really understand value. The third reason we might not want to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him, and that is shame. And he anticipates that perhaps shame of Christ and his word, or more rightly speaking, the shame you would feel if others knew you to hold to this word. I mean, we're actually in our country starting to get there, where you will likely be ridiculed if, if you express that you believe the Bible is accurate in the beginning. You're likely to be ridiculed if you believe the Bible is accurate and it speaks sp statements of, of sexual ethics and marriage. You will be looked upon with contempt. It's beginning, it's just getting started. And the irony here is this. If you seek to avoid the earthly shame of Christ and his word, you're unwilling to endure that shame. You're trying to avoid shame. I don't want shame. I'm getting away from shame. That very act will ensure that you will eternally endure it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Again, it's not that there are two types of people, those who don't want shame and those who do. Don't worry about the shame of man. Worry about Christ and his shame. Don't worry about what people think of you. Worry about what Jesus will think of you when he comes in his glory. Because those who attempt to avoid the shame and the ignominy of the cross, those who will avoid that, they guarantee for themselves the eternal and lasting shame of the Son of Man when He appears in glory and judgment. You seek to avoid the earthly shame of Christ and His Word, you will eternally endure it. Peter, after dying, Christ went outside and wept bitterly. 
And then he ends telling them that truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. God promises that there will be glory. There will be glory. And there will be tastes of glory. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain. In fact, the passage in Luke goes on to say it was only eight days after these sayings, he took them up and they beheld the glory of God in his kingdom. They beheld the glory of the Son of God as, as his glory was revealed. And God will give us tastes and glimpses of glory and the glory to come. We, we are like those who are tasting an appetizer, which is the guarantee of the meal to come. And the Holy Spirit encouraging our hearts, God's people. We, we have tastes and glimpses of glory as we walk through this, as we carry our cross. But make no mistake, you must await your vindication from the Lord. The temptation will be to say, I want my vindication now. I want my exaltation now. I want my inheritance now, Daddy. No disciple is greater than his master. But when he's fully taught, he'll be like his teacher. close as I call the worship team up for our closing song by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision. This is a collection of Puritan prayers. These truths are counterintuitive, counterhuman, and yet Jesus is emphatic that this is what it means to follow Him. His disciples must. If you want to follow after Christ, you must renounce, deny yourself. You must Pick up your cross, lean into it, and carry it. You must follow in that way. The stakes are high. But let me just read this prayer as we get ready to sing our closing song. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. To be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive. The valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. The deeper the well, the brighter thy star shines. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Please stand as we sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken. <laughs>